This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather? With allergy tracking and fluid mapping. So you know when to stay inside and load up on podcast, As well as air quality and UV indexing. So you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk, where we answer your health care and health insurance questions. So be sure to call or text in your questions at 202-838-6837, and we'll answer them in future episodes. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the founder of Healthcare Voices, but I'm also a healthcare survivor because I have been through uh, cancer treatments uh, through the American healthcare system with surprise medical bills, uh, fighting for insurance coverage, and more. And we're here to help you through that process too. So uh, let's start with our questions. Uh, The first question is, what is open enrollment for health insurance? And to answer that, welcome Alika from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Um, So open enrollment is the time every year where anyone um, is able to go on to healthcare.gov or their state-based exchange and uh, enroll in health insurance coverage for the next year. Um, Generally speaking, in most states, that runs from November 1st to January 15th, though it's really important, particularly if you live in a state-based exchange, to check those dates and make sure um, you know what the time is for your particular. Great. And so who can get health insurance right now and who has to wait until open enrollment starts? Great question. Um, Generally speaking, outside of the open enrollment period, which we are now uh, outside of that period, Um, you need to have what's called a qualifying life event in order to apply for coverage. Uh, Usually that's something um, to do with, for example, having lost health insurance coverage. So if you've recently left a job, lost uh, Medicaid, which is a really common scenario a lot of folks are going through right now, um, you would be eligible to enroll. Um, You also could be eligible to enroll if you have um, a... uh, change in family size. So for example, if you recently got married, um, got divorced, had a baby, uh, something like that. And what should you do if you don't have health insurance and you aren't eligible for a special enrollment period and the uh, open enrollment doesn't start until November? That's right. Um, so there's a, two really important things to be aware of. The first is that there's a new special enrollment period as of last year that is based on income. So if you um, are uh, under making under about $20,000 a year as a single person, around $40,000 as a family of four, you may actually qualify to enroll um, any time of year just based on your income alone. So if that applies to you, um, you don't have to meet one of those other life events, you can apply right now. Um, Similarly, if you are eligible for Medicaid, um, which in many states who have expanded their Medicaid programs um, has pretty similar income limits, just a little bit lower than that that special enrollment period uh, limit, um, you actually can apply any time of year as well. And the important thing to know about Medicaid is it's not actually based on your annual income. It's based on your income this month. So if you are experiencing a temporary, um, temporarily lower income, you may still be eligible to apply. Um, so if you've gone to healthcare.gov or you know uh, your state-based exchange, spoken with a local broker, and they say you don't qualify for an ACA plan right now, always really worth filling out an application for Medicaid, especially because the income limits are often higher if you meet um, a different criteria. For example, if you um, you know are pregnant or if you are uh, a child, uh, you might actually be able to enroll even if your income is a little bit higher. 
And how do you figure out which insurance plan is best for your family? There's so many options on the exchange. Uh, very good question. Um, I would say the my number one piece of advice here is always to seek expert help if you need it. Um, you can call healthcare.gov anytime um, or your state-based exchange. Um, you can work with a local uh, navigator or a certified application counselor. Um, and uh, there are also uh, brokers available who are licensed to sell uh, health insurance in your state. So always a good idea uh, if you can find a, a trusted local person to go and uh, work with them and get some expert help. That said, if you're shopping on your own, um, it's really a good idea to make, before you even go to healthcare.gov or your state exchange or a third party like HealthSherpa where I work, um, you it's a good idea to make a list of all the doctors you need covered, um, the typical healthcare services you use in a year, um, and any prescriptions that you need. That's really going to help you as you navigate the enrollment process, no matter where you enroll. There are always tools to enter the doctors you need covered, the prescriptions you need covered, um, and you can see which plans in your area might um, have that uh, available. It's also really important to um, make a similar kind of list for your income um, and get a sense of what your income um, is going to look like uh, for that coming uh, year. We always look for for the ACA, we always look at your annual um, projected. Um, so have that available because what that's going to do is help you understand what kind of um cost-sharing assistance or financial assistance um, on your plan you uh, are eligible for. Many, most people who apply in the ACA can qualify for um, a big discount on their premium and lots, many also qualify for additional savings um, on out-of-pocket costs. So particularly if you're in that second bucket, if you qualify for what's called a cost-sharing reduction, um, it's really, really important to pick a silver plan. Um, that's the only type of plan where you can use those additional savings um, on your out-of-pocket costs. So often you might have no deductible um, or very low deductible and low co-pays when you actually see the doctor. Um, so those are some things to be aware of. Other than that, it's really about um, understanding for you what the best trade-off is. Um, generally speaking, if you want lower out-of-pocket costs, so lower deductible, lower co-pays when you see the doctor, you might have to pay a little bit more in premium. Um, that said, if you um, don't anticipate you're going to use um, much healthcare and you want to buy a lower premium plan with a higher deductible, that can also be a good option. That's also where getting some expert help can be really helpful. And how do you know what you're eligible for? What kind of uh, cost sharing reductions or lower premiums that you, you qualify for? Great question. So generally, um, it's a good idea to like go and fill out the full application. Um, when you go to any healthcare.gov or um, a web broker or any of those sites, you're going to get a little quota that's going to, you're going to put some basic income information in, basic information about your household size, because the limits for financial assistance grow as your household size grows. So you're going to put in a little bit of that information. Um, it's always a good idea to go out and just fill out the full application, though, because sometimes you get through and there might be other questions you answer that open up some of that financial assistance to you or it might, you might fill out the application and find out that you're actually offered coverage from a job and you don't qualify for subsidies. So always a good idea to fill out that full application, no matter what the coder says. Um, and then from there, it's going to look at your income, look at your household size, um, look at any other uh, coverage offers you might have, and you'll get an official estimate of how much uh, you qualify for in um, what we call advanced premium tax credits or subsidies. So that's the amount that comes off your premium every month. And again, those cost-sharing reductions, which can really reduce your out-of-pocket costs, your deductible, your co-pays, um, 
uh, those costs when you actually use your. And if insurance is confusing and you want to work with a broker to figure out what plan, uh, do brokers charge you anything? And how do you know that you're working with someone that's reputable? Great question. Um, brokers should not be charging you anything. Brokers are paid by the insurance company if they enroll you in those plans. Um, so it is a good um, when you're working with a broker, if you want to be sure that they're selling all plans in your area, it's a really good idea to just go to healthcare.gov or again, a web broker like HealthSherpa, check what plans are available in your area and just check with that broker and see um, which plans they they would be able to offer you based on those contracts where they have. Okay. And uh, so if, if you ever get a text or an email or a letter that says that they can find you a great health insurance deal, uh, how can you figure out if that's for real or if it's some kind of a scam? Great question. I would say in general, if you have been, uh, if you're not sort of reaching out to someone and they're the ones reaching out to you, it's good to be a little bit cautious, particularly because um, if you, for example, if you Google uh, Affordable Care Act insurance or Obamacare insurance, um, often the people who are going to buy advertisements on those uh, search terms may not actually sell marketplace plans. So it's a really good idea to actually probe a little bit and see you know, are these plans that are showing up when I go to healthcare.gov and, and look at what's available in my area? Um, or is this maybe a short-term plan or something that's not going to cover things like mental health, things like, um, you know, pregnancy care, um, you know, all those essential health benefits that Affordable Care Act plans come with. So particularly when you're getting those inbound calls, good to be a little bit suspicious. That said, mm -hmm. um, healthcare.gov has tools, many of the state-based exchanges have tools that help you find licensed and certified brokers in your area who may be able to work with. It's also a really great place to get personal referrals from friends and family. Great. And we got an email from Robin referring to our last show. And Robin said, I've worked for physicians for 40 years. Our office will not tell a patient that we're on their insurance plan. We always direct the patient to call their insurance company to confirm that we are on their individual plan. We suggest that the patient writes down the insurance person's name, the date, and the time the call was made. I've had patients do this. And then if the insurance denies them as a provider out of network, the insurance can go back on the recorded call and see that the patient was misinformed by them. I have had insurance companies then pay the claim since they gave the patient the wrong information. So uh, that is also something to consider if you are looking at insurance plans and you want to make sure that your provider is covered by your insurance. According to Robin, uh, the patient, the uh, physician's office may or may not give you an answer, but you should get the insurance company on record in case you ever have to go back and dispute. Great, a great, always a great thing to, to keep those things documented. And particularly if you've searched your insurance company's provider network online and they you know didn't give you that answer um, or I will say, you know, we now have these great protections under the No Surprises Act on out of uh, um, out of network billing. So if you've, for example, gone for a procedure and you weren't told they were going to be out of network, you might have some um, rights there as well. So really good. Um, they are some there are some wonderful resources available um, from CMS on that. They have a great hotline that you can file complaints on. That's also a really good place to get some support. And I think we have links to all that at act.tv slash care talk. So we also got a text in comment today, uh, uh, somebody that's a disabled army veteran, and uh, they say that the hostage uh, take of the, um, 
the debt limit has already affected veterans. There isn't even one available therapist at my VA, which is handling the incoming PACT Act veterans on top of this as well. They were supposed to be hiring more therapists and staff for female veterans, and now they can't. If this 22% cut goes through, veterans will surely die from mental health crises and from lack of care. I've been waiting six months just to see someone about concussion therapy. And that brings me to our special guest for today, uh, Naveed Shah, the political director at Common Defense, who will be talking about what's going on with the default crisis and what budget cuts could mean to veterans' health care uh, and to uh, this disabled army vet that uh, just texted in. Welcome, Naveed. Hey, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's really unfortunate that this is you know, the topic of, of discussion right now, but it's a very real concern for many of our members, many, many veterans across the country. Uh, you know, about 4.7 million veterans rely on the VA for their health care uh, because they have some sort of service-connected disability or, or illness. Uh, and if these 22% cuts go on across the board, uh, it's going to impact every facet of veterans' health care, uh, whether we're talking about the 81 potential lo- uh, loss of 81,000 jobs in the Department of Veterans Health Administration, uh, it, it could, which could result in 30 million fewer visits for regular checkups, cancer screenings and mental health services uh, or substance use disorder treatment. You know, people are going to be in danger. Uh, so this reduction, uh, massive reduction in care is going to be harmful uh, for veterans from, of all stripes, whether they served in Vietnam or the, or the first Gulf War or our post 9-11 veterans. So uh, first, can you explain what exactly is happening? What is the default crisis? What's going on? Uh, you know, I'm not an economist. My, my brother is. And he, the best that he could do to explain it to me is that essentially Congress right now is saying they're not going to pay America's credit card. Uh, you know, the the reason that the dollar is kind of the de facto currency across the globe is because how uh, of how, you know, confident the world is in it. Uh, we always pay our bills. We always pay our debt. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we do is sell treasury bonds, right? Uh, and treasury bonds are trusted by investors across the globe because they are so reliable in times of hardship, in times of, you know, you know, whether the stock market is high or whether the housing market is in is in collapse, treasury bonds have been a reliable security uh, investment for for uh, investors across the globe. If we decide not to pay our, our bills, if we decide that we're not going to raise the debt ceiling and pay our bills, that is going to cause an immediate ripple effect across the country. I believe that Goldman Sachs uh, did a study and, and found that the immediate effect would be about a tenth of the U.S. economy would be affected and that if you hit 10% of the economy, that's going to have ripple effects across the other nine uh, tenths of the economy as well. So uh, Congress is refusing to pay existing bills. This isn't about spending for the future. This is about paying the bills that we've already incurred, right? Right, exactly. These these aren't this isn't new spending. This is these are uh, bills that we've incurred over the years. Whether we're talking about a huge tax cut that uh, the under the previous administration uh, that was put through that largely uh, went to wealthy uh, individuals, or we're talking about spending on things like COVID, uh, you know, and the pandemic health emergency. Uh, those these are things that we've already paid for or that we should have already paid for that are going up for debate now. And so uh, Speaker McCarthy and the Republicans uh, in the U.S. House just uh, passed a bill to address this. Uh, Can you talk more about what's in it and how this would affect veterans? The 
Republican budget, and, and you know, it is a Republican budget. Speaker McCarthy and, and, and the Republicans are the ones who put it forward and passed it through the House. Uh, the I think the, none of no Democrats voted for it. Um, this is the budget that cuts the makes the massive cuts to veterans' health care uh, across the board. Again, it, it's, it does things like, um, you know, it reduces the amount of doctors gonna, that are going to be available to, to, to provide appointments for. Uh, for veterans who are waiting. And right now, uh, as you mentioned, the PACT Act earlier, the PACT Act was the biggest veterans benefits bill that we've passed in, I think, since the post-9-11 GI Bill, right? Uh, in the, at least in the past decade. Um, and what the PAC, one of the things the PACT Act does is it increases access and, and availability of veterans health care to three and a half million more veterans like me who served in Iraq or Afghanistan. And with less than a year later, the, the you know, the, the, this budget that was passed wants to turn around and, and cut those benefits that are that are available for veterans. Uh, and one other thing that I think people forget, uh, you know, even though it happened such a short time ago, we re- we realized during the pandemic that it turns out that the a VA, the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, is supposed to be the backup plan for the entire country. When we have a pandemic and we rapidly and emergently need to get healthcare, vaccines, anything, uh, any sort of, of care to the you know public at large, the VA is supposed to be the backup plan. And after just going through this and just learning about this and realizing how ill-prepared we are for a situation like that, to turn around and cut the veter- Department of Veterans Affairs again is not just uh, bad politics, but it's just dangerous. And some elected officials have said that this bill doesn't actually cut veterans uh, care. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, in the weeds? What, what do they mean? What's going on? I, I wish I could tell you, Laura, honestly, and I've looked into those claims. They, they're saying that they would make some more, you know, carve outs to protect veterans care if this happens in the future. But they didn't make those carve outs in this bill. The bill that they pass is very clear, very concise. They, unlike most bills that pass Congress that are a stack <laughs> a mile high, this one was very clear. It says it's going to be cut 22% cuts across the board. It's going to cut government spending levels down to 20, uh, you know, FY22 levels again. Uh, and if we're not even keeping up with inflation, that's a cut. So they're, they're maybe have plans to try to save something, but we don't want them just to save veterans' health care because veterans' health care is one aspect. But for me and my family, I'm the only one who who uses the veterans healthcare system, right? My wife and kids and and uh, and my mom and my and my siblings and my neighbors. We want to make sure that everybody is protected and not and nobody has to deal with the consequences of this really bad bill. So, what does 22 percent cuts across the board mean to the VA? What would how how would that affect veterans healthcare? It would mean that there were there are going to be higher processing times for veterans affairs, uh, you know, benefits and disability claims. It means that there are going to be fewer telehealth visits available for veterans in rural communities. Um, and aside from the VA, this is also going to make deep cuts to other agencies. So the 1.3 million veterans and their families rely on SNAP or food stamps, uh, and this is going to make it harder for them to be able to access those, those benefits as well. So means that means that military families and, and veteran families are going to go hungry. Uh, it will also make huge cuts to the Department of Health and Human Services, which provides community and mental health care centers, substance abuse treatment, and other public health programs, which veterans who are not eligible for the Department of Veterans uh, Health Care, which actually I think 50, 
I want to say almost 10 million veterans are not, they're, they, they will be uh, out on the streets. And when we talk about veterans being out on the streets, this is also going to make a huge cut to the Department of Labor's Homeless Veteran Reintegration Program, leaving 50,000 veterans uh, who are homeless every night uh, across this country without the basic tools that they need to pull themselves out of poverty. And so if if Congress doesn't come to an agreement, either the, the, the Senate doesn't vote for these terrible cuts or the House doesn't finally pass a bill without the cuts uh, and we default on our debt, then what happens? How does that affect veterans? Well, Janet Yellen said, called it an economic catastrophe, uh, and I don't know how else to say it. Uh, the people who are going to be hit by this the hardest are those who rely on things like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and food stamps, and, and housing assistance, all, all those things that I mentioned. Uh, those, they're the people who are going to be hit the hardest, the most people in the most vulnerable. But it's the, then it's also going to have ripple effects across the economy. Uh, people aren't going to be able to get to work. People aren't going to be able to go to the store and buy the things that they did. Uh, one of the things that, you know, now looking back during the pandemic was kind of funny was when everyone was trying to, to stock up on toilet paper, right? <laughs> that you were only able to do that because the drivers who drive the trucks that deliver the toilet paper to the store were able to do so. And the store was able to be open because the people who take the bus to get to work were able to get there. All of those things are going to be in jeopardy. So forget about stocking up on toilet paper. We're not even sure if you'll be able to get food. So this is a really dangerous situation. And what would you say to the people watching and listening right now? What should they be doing to make sure that this doesn't happen and veterans health care is not cut? Right now, President Biden has taken a really firm stance on this and said that he is not negotiating about the budget or the cuts. He wants a clean debt ceiling increase passed. This was a very similar situation that we had in 2011, where the president uh, said, I want a clean debt ceiling and then passed and then passed and then we'll budget. Not, I don't want to contrive those two things. So they don't need to be linked together. So in order, so I think that's the, the main thing that if people who are sitting at home can do. They should contact their representatives in, in the federal government and say, I want to... Cl- clean debt ceiling passed. We can worry about the budget and the deficit and all that kind of stuff next, but let's get out of this catastrophe, this emergency zone, uh, the red zone that we're in, and then we can deal with those issues. If there's a problem with spending, and I'm not saying there isn't, right? We need to look at that, at those numbers for sure. We shouldn't be probably spending a trillion dollars on on the Pentagon, but that's a whole different conversation uh, we can have too. Okay. So if you are watching or listening right now, you should contact your senators and your representative and tell them to vote for a clean debt ceiling bill, because uh, this is not a fight about the budget and about next year's funding. This is about paying the bills that we already have so that we don't crash our economy. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me more about Common Defense and how veterans can get involved in your work if they want to. Absolutely. So Common Defense has been around since 2016. We're a grassroots veterans organization. And one of the main things that we have is our our veterans organizing. VOI is a training program for veterans who want to get off the couch, who don't want to be armchair activists anymore and want to become advocates in their community. I'm a graduate of VOI. Uh, many of our staff members and veterans across the country are. We've trained hundreds of folks to in how to talk to the media, how to uh, learn about these issues, how to advocate for their communities, uh, and then go back home and do exactly that, whether it's on their local school board or in their state houses. Uh, and then when we have opportunities for them to get engaged on national issues like this, we're able to call upon a, a very highly trained and skilled 
cadre of volunteer veteran volunteers uh, and and bring them into the into these fights. Uh, it's a really great program. I would highly recommend it, and that you can check it out at CommonDefense.us. Great. And if you're watching, you should absolutely be an armchair audience of Care Talk. But then after that, you should sign up uh, with Common Defense for their trainings. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Navid. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Thanks. Uh, and for everyone that's joined us, uh, this is Care Talk. Uh, keep calling and texting in your questions at 202-838-6837, and we'll answer them in future episodes. Thank you. <laughs>